Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This presentation of In Their Own Words is brought to you by The Honor Project and is dedicated to the brave men and women of the United States Armed Forces. During World War II, the United States Marines played a central role in the battle for the islands of the Pacific. Marine Corps veteran Bill Swanson was often in the first wave to hit the beach in many of these brutal campaigns. When we interviewed him for the Honor Project, he painted a vivid picture of what it was like to fight in the steaming jungles and swamps and rain and mud of these Pacific islands. When I first went on the Marine Corps as a, as a private and going into the 3rd Marine Division, where the first job I had was assistant BAR man. BAR is the squad automatic rifle and uh, kind of the, uh, one of the least envious jobs because you have to carry extra weight. The rifleman would carry his own cartridge belt and, uh, and rifle, plus a bandolier of 12 magazines for the BAR. So it, it, was, it, it was not a, a pleasant job just for that aspect. I kept that job for about a year, and then as the war went on, I still stayed in the rifle platoon and did most of the jobs that are involved in there, mostly riflemen, BAR men at times, and you do scouting and various things of that nature, but coming down to it, basically a rifleman uh, was it. The rifleman, actually, that's, that's who takes the ground and, uh, and gets down to the, to the nitty-gritty of the fighting. In the scheme of things, there's riflemen who do things and there's riflemen who do other things and, and depending on the kind of fighting that you're, that you're in and the, and the campaign and all, you might do a variety of things. But basically, it's getting out there with the rifle, just moving forward, uh, trying to take whatever ground that you're assigned to take. Sometimes it's relatively easy. You just move up. Hopefully the artillery has done its job and, and things are relatively easy. But if they didn't or, or, or whatever, well, then you have to do whatever, whatever you're called upon to do, uh, which might be moving into a, uh, say, a, a little pillbox or some kind of a, of a fortification with grenades or, at, at worst, with a bayonet, something of that nature. But you had all kinds of other things. There were, there were individual Japanese trying to do the same thing to you that you're trying to do to them. So they were, and they were hidden. The attacking forces are, are moving forward, so they are uh, easy to spot. But the defenders are, uh, are laying back, and, and in the jungles particularly, they're very hard to spot. They were, they were almost unseen. Uh, you, could, you could go for, and I'm sure many men that were riflemen in frontline outfits probably never saw a Japanese soldier because they, they just were so well hidden that you couldn't always spot them. You might shoot into an area where you think they were, and maybe you would get some, maybe you wouldn't. They also uh, used psychological uh, warfare to the extent that they would pull their dead and their wounded back whenever possible so that you wouldn't know that you had succeeded. So uh, it was frustrating to never know exactly what, what you'd accomplished. You, were, you had taken ground, but did you really take care of any of, any of the enemy. In the later campaigns, when, when we were dealing more with, with, with heavier concentrations of, of troops, then the attacking was done by little larger groups. And it was sometimes still came down to the old squad, which is basically who, who wins the wars, the sergeants and the corporals with the privates. And, you go out and do this, and you go out and do that, and you move up and, and take whatever's expected of you to take. Uh, but back in the, in the jungles, it was, it was still squad action, but a lot, lot more individual. And, uh, but the idea is still, he's the guy that has to take the ground. 
One of Swanson's first campaigns was in November 1943. He was on the front lines of the assault on Bougainville in the Solomon Islands. In the earlier campaigns, uh, the one I'm most familiar with is Bougainville, and it was a, a small-time operation in a sense compared with the later ones that came up. There was basically two regiments of our division that landed. And we had, uh, if I remember correctly, the support that we had were destroyers, uh, firing their probably five, six-inch guns, something like that. And we had some aircraft coming in to strafe the beaches just prior to the landing. The troop transports even fired their, their deck guns. Uh, our particularly, when we were getting ready to land, uh, our particular uh, landing net was up at, at the bow of this one ship, and it was pointed in towards the uh, island, and, and they were firing a five-inch deck gun uh, from there. So later on, while the troop transports, you know, their little uh, bit of gunfire didn't amount to anything. But there, why it, it, at least it seemed to help, and, and they, they used that. So this went on probably by that time, by the time there was much of this firing going on, the, the first waves were in the boats, or getting down the nets into the boats and, and circling around out. And the first step was, was everything seemed to be set up in boat groups of maybe eight or ten boats. And they'd go out and circle until word came, you know, to begin forming the wave and, and getting through from there. So once that communication came into the coxswains, why they'd peel off out of their circle, and usually they'd come into sort of a rough V and start heading toward the beach. And then uh, as, as they began moving closer in, the V would, would begin picking up the wings and, until eventually you had a rough line going across. And about two or three miles offshore was what they called the line of departure. It was a, a boat, picket boat of some kind, that had communication with the command ship. This was the last chance to, to stop the operation was there. Once the boats were passed there, why, there was no other way for communication, and so the, the landing was on no matter, matter what. And uh, so during this time, why then the, uh, the ships would be shelling uh, intermittently with the aircraft, depending on how well coordinated this was and how much of a danger the shelling would be to the aircraft coming down. So Did you see all this while it was going on? Well, we, I didn't see so much of it on Bougainville because we were in the boats and getting ready to go in. Uh, in one of the, some of the later campaigns, I saw it a little bit, bit better. But in the boats, in the, in the landing craft, you couldn't see what was going on? We, we couldn't see that much. We were kind of busy thinking about what we were going to do, and at, at the lower level down there, looking out, you just couldn't see that, that well. Uh, you could hear some of the things that were going on, but we were pretty well intent on, on what we were going to do, getting, getting ready. And, and as we passed the, uh, the line of uh, departure, then we were forced to get down below the gunnels, uh, assuming then that we would be getting closer into where uh, Japanese fire would be easier, you know, to, to hit us. And there was arbor plating on these landing craft, uh, not heavy, but enough to stop rifle bullets and, and this kind of thing. So from the time we, we passed this line of departure, we were pretty much out of it, except for what somebody would tell us. And then we would we'd head on in, and they'd usually the guy would call out a oh, thousand yards to go or five hundred yards to go. And in our particular boat, we were landing in the first wave, so we had a couple of machine guns set up at, at the back of the boat. And at, at about five hundred yards, if I'm not mistaken, why they opened up to strafe the beach. I don't think it was probably did too much good because of the way the boat would be moving around, but it probably made us feel good. Maybe that was what it was for. Uh, then. Uh, again, then getting past that, of course, we lost all track of what was happening except in our little little space there. And uh, then the landing just occurred at, at, at the point from there. In our particular situation, we were lucky in the sense that on our part of the beach on Bougainville was relatively unopposed. but. It, it was a very narrow beach and very heavy jungle and a very rough surf and a difficult beach. So our boat came in and, uh, and hit a sandbar about 50 yards offshore and the coxswain just lowered the ramp right off the bat and we were ordered to move out, which we did, and went into water, which with the wave action, why just was completely over our heads. So we started out, out good, soaking wet and our rifles all wet and uh, eventually moved in, into the beach and across this little, little stretch of stand 
And the jungle at that point, and where I went through, was just absolutely almost impenetrable. We had to take knives and machetes to cut through at that point to, to go in. As we got into the jungle canopy then, why it was probably a little bit easier, but still it was, it was just constantly cutting vines and just moving through and trying to keep contact with, with different other parts of your, of your group, sometimes going through swamps. And uh, on that particular thing also, about oh, somewhere between a half an hour to an hour after we landed, why the Japanese uh, uh, aircraft came in and began strafing the beaches and the jungle areas in there. And this was the only time that we really got strafed, and it was a very terrifying, very terrifying. Uh, in the jungle especially, uh, you couldn't, the canopy was so solid up there that you couldn't see the sky, so you couldn't see the planes or have any idea how close they were, but the sound was just uh, un un unbelievable. It was just the sound of these roaring engines coming down and, and the, uh, the sharp crackle of the machine gun fire coming down just literally scared the living devil out of you. Uh, we really didn't know what the heck to do, except all we did was just hit the ground and try to make a you know small little target as, as we could. And uh, that was my first first real terror, and the first time that I really prayed in desperation, and the first of, of many times uh, later on. But uh, uh, it was a it was a very terrifying thing to go through. I I uh, after that uh, at different times I I thought of the Japanese, you know under are strafing and, and rocket attacks and things like that. And I, uh, sometimes I almost had to sympathize just a little bit, not too much, just, just a little bit. There was always a plan in, in the sense that, that you were supposed to try to find out where the enemy was and, and, and react. Uh, again, it comes down to the corporals and the, and the sergeants usually to try and, and figure that out. A lot of individual guys, again, depends on where you're, where you're sitting, whether you had a, a good view, say, of where, where the fire was coming from and somebody else didn't, well, then maybe you either would point the way or, or start moving in that direction. You might go a day or two or three without really running anything serious, and then all of a sudden, bingo, why, you know, you're either hit on patrol or, or you're running to something uh, out there. One time we were, were hit, we were on a patrol out uh, quite a little ways in, in front of the lines on this particular day, and uh, matter of fact, we were out to try and, and locate what was supposedly a fairly good-sized Japanese buildup uh, for an attack on the lines. And uh, so we were seeing signs of, of the enemy for some period of time, and we knew there was a sizable force out there, but our job was to locate them and then try to get back and let the artillery and what have you know about it. So we kept moving along very slowly, very, <laughs> very carefully, and uh, it began raining hard, pouring down rain, which, looking back, way was, was probably good for us. The Japanese stayed in their foxholes pretty much that way, but, but eventually we got far enough into them that they, uh, that they saw us and began firing, and then we began firing. I remember hitting the ground, and... Uh, I had got my foot tangled in, in some roots. These, remember this jungle, these trees have big roots and a lot of stuff growing all over the place. Only I got my foot caught and I fell down laying over one of these roots with my rear end kind of sticking up a little, little higher than I like to have it. And just about this time, why, I saw an arm coming out of the bushes a few yards over and a grenade sailed over, you know, in my direction and I was <laughs> fighting to uh, try and get as much of me in my helmet as I could and just try to I couldn't get unloosed, but I was trying to, you know, protect myself as much as possible. And the, uh, the grenade hit and exploded, and I got lucky, and, and nothing happened to me. Uh, after that, I got myself uh, uh, unloosened from, from that and, and just took what cover I could there. Now, at the time that I was, that this grenade was coming over, I still have a mental picture of one of the guys shooting, you know, over towards where that came from. And uh, now after that, I don't have too much recollection of, of the individual things going on because the rain was coming down hard, the jungle was rather thick, and it was a lot of confusion because uh, we didn't know how many they were or just where they were. And they, at the same time, didn't know how many we were or where we were either. But So there was a lot of firing trying to just shoot in, into what, what you would think maybe a spot where they were if you saw some movement. So this went on for a period of time getting towards nightfall, and uh, 
we were getting extremely worried about being stuck out in there uh, at, uh, at night. And, and about this time, why part of the patrol with the patrol leader had somehow broken off and uh, began pulling back because that was their primary function was to, they found out what they wanted to find out and, and now they were going to head back. But communication got <laughs> lost somewhere and there was about seven or eight of us that, that didn't get the word. And so we were stuck there for a little while longer. And then finally someone took charge of the, of the group. I can't remember who, but I remember being told that we were going to move back uh, and try to get back to the lines. And uh, so we sort of stopped firing in individually and, and kind of moved back and got together, oh, I don't remember, 20, 30 yards back from where we were. And uh, we just thought, you know, we were really in a hopeless situation because we really had uh, visions that there, there could be as many as a thousand or a couple of thousand Japanese. It was a fairly large, large force. And uh, so we thought, well, all we can do is really just take a chance and, and just head for the lines and try to do the best we could. I remember running through different, from then, different Japanese position areas and thinking, you know, God, I can't believe that we're still, we're still on top of the ground. We're, we're still moving and, and these guys, you know, haven't either come out of their foxholes or, or whatever. I don't, I don't know what it was. But anyway, it was still raining, raining hard and we thought, well, maybe this was our favor. Then we run into a, a big swamp and I thought, oh, God, geez, you know, there's really no time to try to find a way around this damn thing. So we just headed into it. And uh, actually, looking back in a way, it might have been a good thing because there was a lot of clumps of brush and bushes out in there. And by the time we got into it very far, we were, we were pretty hidden. And uh, we still kept thinking, you know, they've got to be right behind us. They've got to be right on our tail. And uh, so anyway, this went on for a while. We, it took us... You know, we just got back to the line just about as, as, as it turned dark. And, uh, but it was, it was one of those kind of things that, uh, you know, looking back, it was just a little, little luck. We, you know, maybe rain, swamp, we only thought maybe he was, you know, giving us a who knows. But you've got to have a little luck. At this time, I mean, those kinds of things. Was there was there air support during those, or no? It no. Was, it was, it was no, just those were those were just strictly uh, reconnaissance patrols. Now, it's very possible that air had somehow picked up Japanese movement out there, and that's the reason that we were sent out to look this over. Uh, but otherwise, all this kind of thing was just strictly strictly ground and uh, small units in general. Uh, we'd go out and patrol quite often with. Uh, with our squad, which could be anywhere from eight or ten guys to maybe four or five, depending on, on how long into the campaign we were. So that was generally the way that we patrolled. We'd go out, we had a certain distance that we were supposed to cover and, and make sure that the Japanese were, were, were not in, in our area. I remember one day we were, we were patrolling out while we'd gone, walked up this, this river for some period of time and walked back in there, and that was just I don't know why, but it just seemed like a kind of a spooky place back in there where, where we finally wound up before we headed back. And uh, we never ran into any trouble, though. It was, a, it, was, it was easy. It was just miserable. But we got back okay. But the next day, another patrol from our company went out in the same area and got hit with a Japanese ambush. And several guys were killed. And it was a very different kind of a thing. I often wondered, now, did they see us out there and think, well, we'll wait for a better opportunity, or we got away before they got set up, or, you know, you never know. Uh, again, it's just strange how, how things happen in different ways. Was the patrol's objective to engage the enemy, or just to find out where they were? No, mainly to find out where they were, engage them if, if they were there. Uh, there were different kinds of patrols. Sometimes they'd go out uh, uh, deliberately to try to set up an ambush. Uh, you know, trying to, to find a Japanese patrol, uh, because they're doing the same thing. Uh, it's, it's the eyes of, of the uh, leaders. Is the, the only way they know really what's going on is by somebody who's out patrolling. It was basically very miserable living conditions. It was a very heavy jungle island, uh, a sort of steep mountains inland, a, a, a rather level beach area, and then went went into steep mountains, very, very heavy jungle and, and many swamps, uh, a lot of rainfall, uh, a lot of mud, 
it was, as a matter of fact, it was so muddy that uh, trucks and things like that could only go certain distances and then they just bogged down. They began using amphibious tractors in there the first time I'd seen them used just as a means of transportation because they could go through the swamps and they could go through this mud and, and stuff like that. But it was a, an extremely difficult kind of a place to, to deal with. Uh, uh. And in the daytime, it, uh, it was just, just constantly moving through, you know, some type of jungle or swamp. Sometimes, even in the daytime, it's amazing how thick that thing can get. You could literally reach out your hand, you know, and, and lose the guy next to you if he wasn't, you know, that close. And they had uh, one, they had a bunch of all kinds of trees and vines and whatever. One we called the wait a minute vine, which was a very thin, wispy uh, vine that, that hung down, uh, but it was very strong and it had very sharp little, little hooks on it. So this grabbed your clothes or grabbed your neck or, or something like that or your arm while you just had to wait a minute to untangle because it was too strong to, if you pulled, it's going to rip your, rip your arm pretty good or, or just kind of hang your clothes up. So anyway, wait a minute vine was, was one of the little, little things. What was worse, daytime or nighttime? Well, daytime was, uh, was bad and, uh, we, uh, we kind of always said that, uh, the days are hell below the nights because the nights were really worse for us. Uh, on the front lines. It only took a night or two to learn that we had to have two-man foxholes with one awake uh, in, in order to maintain the integrity uh, of the line. Uh, so this started out pretty good. We thought, well, hey, we'll, you know, you catch the first four hours and I'll catch the next four hours. And, but that only lasted about one or two nights and then it was down to two hours. And within a few nights, well, we were down to just one-hour watches because we just absolutely couldn't stay awake more than an hour even the one hour would become unbearable after a while. It's just, we were forced to lay on our backs without hardly moving, so, you, so when you're sleepy anyway, you just can't move while you're just continually fighting sleep. The jungle had its, uh, had its noises. It was a, a very noisy place at night. Uh, insects, animals, uh, uh, all kinds of things out there, and it was almost like a crescendo of, of noise that would that would go on. And this would go on for a period of time. It was, it was the normal kind of jungle thing. But every once in a while, it would just stop like that, like you cut it with a knife. And, just, and of course, that's when the hair went up in the back of your neck and you thought, oh, geez, somebody's really there. <laughs> They're right out there now. And uh, uh, so it was, it was a scary situation for us, uh, just uh, you know, thinking about it, uh, because it was either so dark you couldn't see anything, or if the, the light was such that you could see trees and things and shadows. And uh, pretty soon, you know, trees and bushes can look pretty human if you want them to. And they can begin moving. They can begin doing all kinds of things. So your eyes and your, your imagination plays uh, tricks with you quite a bit. But this noise then would, uh, eventually it always seemed to go the same way. But one, one little insect would make his little noise or one little bird or whatever, and then another, another, another. And pretty soon, why? it's back to the old crescendo. And we sort of felt, you know, once it was back to normal, that, well, you know, things are at least back in a, in a kind of a normal condition. The nights were interesting in that aspect. It was, it was difficult uh, for us being in the front lines because we couldn't get out of our foxholes at night. We had to establish that anything above ground was the enemy because of their uh, tactics of uh, infiltrating the lines. So there was no other real, real defense for us to do that. So. If you had to relieve yourself or whatever at night, why this, of course, had to be done in the foxhole. And it was a, it was a kind of a miserable thing. And uh, usually we were wet. Uh, the tropics have a habit of, of raining in the late afternoon, uh, just before we were going to settle in. So you'd probably you know, be, be wet to begin with and then pretty impossible to dry out during the night. So it was a miserable uh, aspect in, in that way. And of course, there were occasionally uh, artillery fire and things like that would come in as well. And uh, no matter where artillery fire is, uh, the, the unpredictability of it, it uh, not knowing where it's going to hit, uh, you know, it may not be going to hit close to you, but you don't know. Uh, it comes down and you're, you're laying there uh, sweating and uh, kind of praying, well, you know, not here. Not, you, know, you know he's going to hit someplace, but, uh, but not here. And uh, it just another one of the things that made the nights uh, 
In the daytime, you can you can see it, it might still be hell, and it was hell, uh, but you you could see. But at, at night, there was just so many elements that uh, that kind of made it more terrible. Swanson told us that even the simple things, like resupply, were difficult under these miserable conditions. Well, resupply was pretty much a do-it-yourself uh, thing. We naturally ran out of food, and we would run out of ammunition and water and things like that. Uh, water was always critical. In, in the jungles particularly, you, you sweat terribly. And uh, even though there's raining all the time, or a lot of the time, you can't always capture this water. And there's not always streams, and even if they are, they might be suspect, so it's not that easy to get water. So consequently, we were, we were always very thirsty, and water was, was a big item to try to bring up. Uh, food and ammunition, naturally, we, we used uh, certain amounts of, and so uh, when it came time to, that we needed it or that the dumps had been brought up within a distance that we could go back, maybe 500 yards or half a mile, something like that, why then we would, we would go back at the end of the day of moving up, why so many guys would be ordered to go back and pick up supplies and bring them back up. So this was, this was our, our supply way of was do it yourself. Later on, and in different campaigns where, where you could bring vehicles up, why it was a little bit different. But in those earlier campaigns, it was, it was pretty much just go get it yourself. What overall, what was the objective, Marines' objective, the military, what was their objective on Bougainville? How did you achieve it? Well, the, the main objective on Bougainville was to, to neutralize the Japanese that were on there, uh, neutralize the air bases that they had, establish our own air bases, and the intent was never to capture the whole island, but to take enough of it that we could establish two or three air bases and, and take control of the island. Why and, was that important? Well, it was important because we were trying to neutralize other bases like Rabaul and those other Japanese bases that were nearby. Uh, shortly after we went into Bougainville, the 1st Division went into a place called New Britain, which uh, is actually the island that Rabaul sits on. And so this was the kind of a twin thing. To, that, was, that was one of the big Japanese bases down there. So a lot of it at that time was to neutralize those bases, gain control of the air and of the sea uh, as well down there deny the Japanese that same thing. So we took what we had to and then left, established a perimeter and, and left the rest of it there. In relation to Bougainville, I was going to mention one thing in order to give the Army a little bit of credit. The, we left Bougainville at a time where we had our perimeter secured, but then the Japanese eventually did build up a sizable force out there and attacked the line somewhere two or three months after we left. And it was a sizable battle that went on. But the Army did do their job, and they, they, they took care of it. How tough were the Japanese soldiers? Japanese were really very tough. Uh, they're, 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 uh, they had a different you know, mindset, and they were, they were fighting for a different reason and, and a lot of things like that than we were. I, I would imagine that they knew fear the same way that we did. They certainly dealt with it very well. I had to give them grudging admiration for the fact that they would fight to the bitter end, uh, knowing that, you know, that they were going to be killed or horribly wounded in, in some sort of way somewhere down, down the line. Uh, but in giving them this grudging admiration, we also hated their guts. We really, we really got to, uh, to where we didn't really consider them human. And they probably thought the same about us. Uh, it was a uh, really it was a war of no quarter in the Pacific because they they wouldn't give up we couldn't give up and so it just was continually battling until the last uh, Japanese gave up or or somehow we overcame them but uh, very very miserable kind of thing and a lot of it due to the fact that the Japanese fought extremely hard they didn't always fight well but thank God they didn't uh, but they fought very hard no question about it. The battle to recapture Guam from the Japanese was launched on July 21, 1944. The Guam campaign was, uh, was a little bit different and a little larger campaign than Bougainville. Uh, basically, then the first day on, on Guam, we were uh, laying off offshore the first waves. We were coming in about oh, 45 minutes to an hour after the first wave. So we got a chance to see. Now, this 
this invasion fleet was a big invasion fleet. There were uh, two divisions, uh, plus another division that was in, in reserve to, to hit Guam. On our particular section of the beach, where there were several battleships, a number of cruisers, destroyers, all shelling different, different parts of the island. And it was an extremely heavy bombardment. And compared to Bougainville, it was just a completely different show. As the, uh, the bombardment got into the period of time when the first waves were getting into the water, uh, then the bombardment held up just enough that the uh, Corsairs, uh, mainly Corsairs, uh, Marine aircraft, came in to strafe the beaches. And they came in very low, just, just over the palm trees, uh, firing their machine guns and their cannons, and in some cases rockets that were uh, mounted under the wing, uh, adding whatever they could do to the immediate beach area. Then as, the, as they cleared off, the bombardment started up again, hitting right on the beaches. And then as the boats, the first waves and their Amtrifting tractors got in towards, oh, it's hard to judge, but a few minutes from the beach. Then a series of ships, small ships, they uh, were uh, rocket launching ships, like small destroyers or LSTs that came up. And they were sort of patrolled right along the beach. And then they, they had these rockets in racks of, oh, maybe 10 or 12, and they, they could literally fire thousands of them in a, in a matter of minutes. So just prior to the first wave landing, why then the, the artillery moved inland, the naval gunfire moved inland, these ships launched their rockets right on the beach. And of course, that led up a tremendous amount of uh, uh, smoke and dust and what have you. So you really couldn't see anything uh, beyond once, once that happened. And the first wave then moved right into that. The amphibious tractors climbed over the coral reef, moved in about 400 yards to the beach, then climbed up on the beach. The Marines and that jumped out and then went ahead and, and did whatever they had to do at that time. Uh, we came in, like I say, about 45 minutes to an hour later uh, in amphibious tractors, drove up over the reef and onto the uh, island. The artillery was still coming down fairly good around the beach area. What was it like uh, being in the middle of the artillery? Well, it's, again, it's, artillery is scary. Yeah. Uh, you can say this, there wasn't anybody standing around on the beach. Everybody was either laying down or they were running if they were above ground. Uh, it, it just, it gets your attention, uh, even if it isn't real close, because you don't know whether the next one's going to be close. And, uh, and anyway, we, we spent a bit of time getting out of our tractors and forming up, and then we moved up into the area right just uh, below the, where the front lines were at that time. And uh, most of the day was spent uh, in consolidating ground and, and moving moving up for the various frontline units, and eventually we we dug in on on one uh, one of the hills there. Uh, I don't remember too much about the first night except I remember more artillery fire, and I remember one landing right on the edge of my foxhole, and uh, that's scaring the living hell out of me and uh, making me wish I'd dug in deeper. What was the resistance like from the Japanese? Resistance was heavy, extremely heavy, very heavy, uh, particularly on our left. There was a, a hill, and some uh, I use the word loosely because it was really kind of like cliffs, very steep coming down. And the Japanese were very heavily uh, entrenched up in there. And the regiment, which uh, had the job of taking that hill, had a very difficult time, very difficult time. Part of our regiment was involved in it also, but not our particular company. And uh, it was it was just some parts that were just almost like going up a cliff. And of course, they were firing down on the guys as they tried to move up. And uh, just a very, very difficult thing, uh, expensive in, in terms of casualties uh, to get up there. But eventually they did, of course. How long were you on Guam? The campaign lasted about 20 days. And then we, s we secured the island uh, on uh, uh, about the 10th of August. And then we stayed on Guam after that. We had taken Guam fairly fast and left a lot of, uh, of, of Japanese uh, uh, hiding out in different places. So. Uh, our job was we built a camp and uh, uh, then got replacements in and more or less re recovered from the Guam operation and prepared for the, the next one. And in the meantime, during that time, well, we patrolled uh, constantly the hills and canyons in the area that we were given to patrol, uh, trying to get rid of whatever Japanese were left in there. So it was a fairly busy time for, for us uh, and no liberty. So it sounds like the war as a, as a Marine, you would see little bits and pieces of the war, your bits and pieces, 
but then the war would sort of move on or beyond you. I mean, is that sort of the way it works? Well, in a sense, that's true. You only knew, you know, the little bit that you were involved in. You were, you were a small, in the infantry, you're always a very small group involved in a very large group, which is involved with sometimes a larger group. And you really have no way of knowing what goes on much. Your little world is, is just, you know, there where, where you are. Well, I guess, I, guess the, I guess the parallel I'm trying to draw is, in Europe, it seems like frontline troops would push forward, push forward, push forward, keep, and just keep pushing forward, where in the Pacific, it was a different sort of... of, of yeah, I see what you're aiming at there. There, the, the, the front, in other words, they were, the landmass was, the whole thing was going to be taken. Right. Whereas we, we might have said we took Bougainville and, uh, and then went, we went back to Guadalcanal and for, for our uh, R&R, so to speak. I use the term loosely. And, uh, uh, but from then, then it was uh, you know, maybe a thousand miles to the next uh, island that we were going to take, which was a small island, uh, 15 by 25 or 30 miles. So all we knew is that little island that we took that and then another thousand miles or whatever to the next island that we, that we would take. So we didn't see, you know, we weren't involved in the large landmass kind of thing that they were in. Next stop for Bill Swanson was the legendary battle of Iwo Jima. Iwo was the first, the worst, you know, for the for the Marine Corps. Uh, islands like Bougainville were terrible in their own way, but but Iwo was uh, was so much worse in the terms of, of casualties, in the terms of, of heavy artillery and this kind of thing that, that they're really, uh, it's hard to compare and yet you can't, you can't uh, uh, take away campaigns like Peleliu and Saipan and even Guam and, and some and Tarawa and those others. They were also terrible. Iwo was just smaller, more concentrated. The amount of people to, uh, to fight was, was a smaller number compared with in the, some of the areas that were actually doing the fighting because was just there wasn't the room. You were you were continually frontal attack. Now uh, I was lucky on Iwo. I only landed uh, stayed a couple of days. We uh, we moved out uh, on the one day that, that I was in the advance and uh, moved up towards the second airfield. The our regiment that had landed a day or so earlier than us had taken part of that and and relieved we relieved them at that point and began the attack over in the second airfield. So the main thing I remember about that was very heavy artillery fire as we prepared to, to get up. We had an abutment that we had to climb about 10, 12 feet to get up to this airfield strip. And, uh, and as we got the word to move out, why we, we, we moved out up across this onto the airfield and began receiving fire from uh, uh, a number of different kinds of, uh, of weapons and from different positions. They were using anti-tank and anti-aircraft guns uh, off to our right, which were depressed and firing down across the field. And somewhere up ahead, why machine gun fire was, was floating down. And artillery and mortar fire were coming from a variety of, of places uh, on the airfield. So it was a, it was a uh, very, very hellish place uh, to be. Our casualties were, were quite heavy just, just, just along there. And by the time we, we got to the end of this, this one runway, and I was hit shortly after that, while I was uh, laying on the ground, while I watched a number of people being, being hurt and killed uh, while we were waiting to move out again, and finally it just happened to be my turn. And I, after I was, uh, was hit, then I uh, was ordered back. And uh, it was a hard, <laughs> it, w it wasn't so easy uh, getting back, because they had to cross the airfield again to, to get back. Uh, which I did, and I eventually made it back. But, but for the uh, for the units that uh, that stayed on, uh, Iwo, it was very difficult. My company, uh, which landed with around 200 men, had over 150 casualties. Now that's that's heavy casualties. Uh, the squad that I went in with, uh, we had 10 men in the squad, and seven of those were killed, and the other three of us wounded in one form or another. So this was the kind of thing that was happening. It was just, you just decimated sometimes whole squads and platoons on, on one objective. But, now, uh, was there air cover going on? While we had air cover going on. It wasn't what you'd call a whole squadron of planes normally out, you know, flying around and diving down. But there were individual flights, and I imagine that they were working under communications with, with ground people telling them where they wanted to, 
to have them come in. We also had still naval support. This being a small island, naval guns could, could cover almost anywhere that they wanted. But the, the aircraft could get into sometimes areas where naval gunfire couldn't penetrate because of just the way the logistics of the land was. Where you wanted to go was, was hidden down in here, and the, air, the Navy would be firing from there. So the, the airplanes helped, uh, mostly Corsairs, and some uh, dive bombers uh, coming in as well. Knowing that air cover was there, would you guys wait uh, for the air cover to come in and then sort of move up? I mean, it would have varied. If you were ordered to, to go up and do, why you just went up and did. Whether air cover was coming or not, why that was somebody else's problem. Uh, naturally, you wouldn't be, be advancing in while air cover was coming down. Hopefully not. Uh, uh, these things happen sometimes. Uh, and they talk about friendly fire, and uh, these happen in all wars. Swanson went on to tell us more details about assaulting the beach on Iwo Jima. Uh, it was a matter of you'd run away and hit the ground and then get up and, and run again. Now, this was a fairly good-sized area that we were attempting to cross. So we went longer probably than you would ordinarily in attacking you know, areas. You don't move that fast that far. You usually go you know, just whatever distance that you can without being shot up too badly. And if you find that you're running into pillboxes, well, then you try and use whatever weapons that you've got available. The, the planning was, and the, the idea was, we had uh, BARs with us, and of course we had light machine guns, and uh, we had mortars. We also had flamethrowers, and we had what they call pole charges. They were just blocks of TNT on a, on a long pole that you could ignite and, and move up. So the theory was that if you run into to a pillbox that you want to take, now. The other aspect of this thing is that those are usually mutual supporting. So in a broad defensive line, there'll be one and there'll be those able to, to fire on you while you're attacking this one. So the plan didn't always work real well. But the idea was to move up, have, if you had machine guns with your BARs, try and cover the firing ports or whatever that you could see to keep the enemy down as much as possible. And, and if you had a flamethrower, you'd use him for the same purpose burn the guys out if possible, but, it, but also to keep them occupied while you had a guy run up with a pole charge, if you had one, lay it up there by the pillbox and blow it. If you had a tank along with you, even so better, why well, you, you, you let him do as much work as possible. But everything was, uh, was kind of a, uh, you know, the plan was there, but uh, you do what the situation called for. But... Uh, uh, I, I know that there were whole squads and even platoons that were decimated just taking one pillbox. It was just that difficult. So after the Marines were done with it, done with their part of the operation, what would happen? Army would come in, you guys would take it, off. In or? in general, in the in, in the campaigns, the army would usually relieve us at the end. Now on Guam, it was decided that we would establish our main uh, base there, so we stayed there. But I'm sure that the Army came in on Iwo and whatever other forces. It was such a small place that they probably just had some type of occupation force that came in after that. Some of the larger campaigns, why the, uh, there was still activity going on for some time, so they needed a force to, to, continually, to continue opposing the enemy. And uh, the Army or whoever else would be sent in to do that. And then we would move out and uh, train for the next and get ready for the next one. So there was training in between uh, operations? Oh, absolutely. Continual. Marine Corps is continual training. Training and bringing in the new replacements. Every campaign, you always had new replacements coming in to be filled in and the open vacant spots and then brought up with the training. So about the time you train, finish one training program, why then they'll call you and say, well, you know, another six-week training program coming up. So it was just constant. And uh, we did have, we, you know, we would have like Sundays off usually. And uh, the evenings probably pretty much our own, but there was a lot of little housekeeping chores that you had to keep up with. If we were in a tent camp, which usually when we weren't, you know, fighting where we were, uh, well, you'd have to maintain that. You'd have to maintain your rifles or BARs or whatever other equipment you had. So it was a fairly busy time. We didn't, and there was no liberty, of course, either. In our particular situation, why, after we left New Zealand, why we never had liberty until we got back to the States, which was over two years later. And uh, it didn't, wasn't, didn't work that way with all, but it did happen to work that way with us. 
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. For the Marines, hazardous duty wasn't always related to an island assault. Swanson told us about a frightening incident on Guadalcanal. We used to un unload the ships. Everything came in by ship, and there was no docks, so everything had to be unloaded by landing craft or barge. And they would use marine working parties quite a bit because that was cheap labor. And uh, so anyway, we would sometimes be detailed down to the beach for a week or two. And in one particular instance, we were, we were down to the beach, and uh, we were uh, out unloading this one new ship that had come in. There were two of them in, one of them a few miles astern of this one. And uh, uh, I was on board ship. Sometimes we'd work the, the beach, sometimes the, uh, the, the ship. Anyway, on this one, while we were working on this one, it was loaded with drums of gasoline and fuel oil, all kinds of flammable things like that. We'd always get the mail off first, which was on top. And, and so anyway, we had moved considerable amount, amount of this stuff down on barges and what have you. And we were up close enough to the top of the hole, though, that we could see out, and we noticed the flight of our planes coming in. This was right about dusk. And somebody thought, the last plane in the, in the little group looked kind of different, but we couldn't be sure, so anyway, we went back to work. But then a few minutes later, while we heard a big explosion astern of us, and apparently this plane had turned out to be a Japanese plane, and he had bombed the ship astern of us, and then he was heading over towards our ship. So the loudspeaker came out for all working party personnel to uh, clear the ship. So we ran up on deck and didn't know what the heck to do. There was no, you know, you didn't get into lifeboats or... I don't think, even think we had any life jackets. It was uh, just a matter of things were going to be happening too fast. And uh, so people started jumping off the ship. Some were going down onto barges that were still tied, but by the time I got to wherever they were, they were all untied and beginning to back off because they were loaded with the same kind of flammable stuff. Anyway, I finally got up to the, to the bow, and there was still one with a, with a line uh, attached down below. And I, I looked down at it. It was still 30 or 40 feet down. I thought, well, I better jump on this. Before I did, well, some guy yelled up from below and said, Hey, Mac, if you're coming, get your ass down. We're moving out. So uh, anyway, that got me, uh, my attention, and I slid down the line onto the, onto the barge. And as soon as I hit the barge, we disconnected and began moving back. And within, uh, oh, within a minute from that, why, the plane came. I could watch it coming over the, over the ship, and it dropped a bomb just in front of the superstructure, just about in the hold where we had been working. And of course, the front of the ship went up, up like that and flaming fuel oil and gasoline, what have you, came down all over, and it, uh, it was kind of a mess. It, everything worked out all right. As far as I knew from, from our standpoint, it was, it was kind of scary because we didn't know whether the stuff we had on board might ignite. But it was really worse. The people in the water were uh, having a tougher time because some of the water began to get covered with this burning fuel. And uh, so we wound up just kind of helping those people out. In your opinion, what was the one thing, the most important thing, that allowed us to win the war? Oh, I, I suppose you have to come down to the, to the atomic bomb. We would have won the war without it, uh, but we might have had a terrible, terrible amount of casualties uh, to do it. Uh, so it, it, it got it over quicker. It was a, uh, a terrible thing uh, for, uh, for the Japanese in those places. Uh, but remember that the war was a terrible thing, and even the firebombing of Tokyo and those kind of things were thousands and thousands of people were, were killed. And, uh, and war in general is, is, a, is a terrible, horrible thing. But of course, we were thrilled to death when the war was over because the Marine Corps basically uh, would have been involved in, in the invasion. I came back to the States after Iwo uh, for my uh, normal time after a couple of years overseas, but I was made plain to me that I would be sent back out and be in, in the invasion of one of the islands. So, uh, you know, I was looking at, you know, I survived so far, but uh, uh, did I have enough luck to survive the next one? I, I didn't know. So we were all very relieved. 
We interviewed Bill Swanson about 50 years after the end of the war. He still had strong feelings about serving on the front lines of battle and what it meant for him and his fellow Marines. The front line was a, uh, and is a kind of a, kind of a different animal. Uh, everybody hates it. Uh, it's the worst place in the world to be. But at the same time, there's a, there's a kind of a camaraderie up there, uh, perhaps because of sharing, you know, the misery and, and what have you, that uh, is, you don't find quite other, other places. And, and again, it's, it's something, like I say, you, you hate like heck to be there. But a lot of times, even if given the choice, you, you really wouldn't be transferred out, you know, because your, your buddies are here and your, your kind of life is there. And it, it's a hellish life, but, but you get, I, I really say accustomed to it, but that's not really the, the word, but, but you somehow learn to, to deal with it. And uh, uh, now I won't say that that's, there were days when I wouldn't say it that way. <laughs> but looking back, why there was a lot of that camaraderie that, that exists up there, which I think is what enables frontline people to do the terrible and the horrible things that they really have to do. They're, they're basically fighting for each other. Uh, they're, they're, they're doing for, the, for their buddies. In other words, you're, you're out there getting your butt killed off or whatever. Not so much, you know, eventually you're not fighting for the old USA or you're not fighting for freedom, but you're fighting for your buddies and for some inexplicable thing for the, the old Marine Corps sometimes gets its, uh, you know, there's, there's that feeling in there. But it's, it's more that, that fighting for your buddies and for pride. Those larger issues are certainly there, and, uh, and, and you do, you know, they're there. But when it comes down to the real nitty-gritty, when you're, you know, doing these difficult things, well, you're not thinking about that, but you're thinking about that if I don't do this, my buddy is, is going to be either in jeopardy or I know that he'll be doing it, you know, if I do it. And so it's this kind of a thing, and there's just something you just... <laughs> You don't really want to look bad in your, in your buddy's eyes either. So there's a lot of little psychological things that go on there. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.